Welcome to the Big Break Software Podcast. We'll be talking with software startup founders, software coaches, and consultants, and how they found their own software success. And now, let's get started with the show. Hi, everyone. This is Jordy Wardman here, host of the Big Break Software Podcast, where I talk to top leaders in the software field like Seth Godin, Andrew Warner of Mixed Gene, and many more. This is a show where we talk to proven founders about their zero to 30,000 MRR journey and beyond. Today's episode is brought to you by OneStop.io. We have 45 developers waiting to take your idea to fruition. If you want a reliable full stack development team with top talent that costs half as much as in house developers, and you can trust your SaaS or mobile app with us. We'll give you the first 30 days, no risk, and we guarantee being on time and on budget, or we finish the project at no extra cost. Contact us at onestop.io, and let's talk about your SaaS project today. Today, I have Peter Valley of Zen Arbitrage. Peter has a suite of Amazon products, including a SaaS. Zen Arbitrage is the flagship product. He's also a number one seller on the topic of selling on Amazon. Today, we're going to find out how Peter was able to grow his SaaS from zero to 30,000 MRR in the first six months. How are you today, Peter? Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Good. Excited to talk to you about how uh, you built your SaaS. So let's just, uh, maybe you could give a quick intro on who you are. Yeah, my name is Peter Valley. Uh, my origins, uh, not in software, not even close. I've been an Amazon bookseller for a long time. So selling used books on Amazon was my business for a number of years. It actually still is a, a certain part of my business. And so I sort of evolved from that to developing software tools to kind of solve my own problems as an Amazon bookseller. Okay, cool. And, and what's your background? So I do not come from an entrepreneurial background. I don't come from an entrepreneurial family. I spent my entire 20s into my 30s destitute. And I mean living on less than $10,000 a year, which doesn't even sound possible. But I toured with bands. I was involved in like the punk rock subculture. I hitchhiked the country. So I just did everything I could to avoid having to work, essentially, is my background. And so it wasn't until I got into my 30s that I discovered entrepreneurship, and I realized that was kind of the path that allowed me to maintain my freedom, which is kind of the starting point for me, is, is maximizing my freedom. And so my background really is, if I were to tell you, it has nothing to do with business, but, I, <laughs> but prior to me getting into the software business, I was an Amazon seller, as I mentioned, and so I did that for several years, and I, I actually still do that to some extent. And so Amazon book selling was the niche that I carved out. I got really good at it. And it's just always been a passion of mine for quite a while. Okay, so so as I understand, no university, right? No when university. You say university sounds no like entrepreneurial okay. influences whatsoever. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, in fact, I had everything working against me in terms of my mindset. And I was actually recently been kind of trying to like not really write memoirs, but just sort of do some journaling about my entrepreneurial history. And I just realized how like toxic my mindset was how everything was like like some of my early software ideas were so cringeworthy in terms of just how just my mindset was not in the right place so yeah I mean, my background is really really like stacked me up to not be successful as an entrepreneur and i somehow <laughs> have been uh, successful despite all that but it sounds like you probably had a lot of hard-earned street smarts though so is it would you say that's that's correct absolutely and, and you know what being um I don't want to say homeless because it was it was voluntary. You know, there's I just I like to travel, so I would just do that any way I could. But what that taught me, those experiences hitchhiking, I used to hop freight trains around the country in my twenties. What those experiences taught me 
were how to problem solving fundamentally, right? It's like you're in a town, you've got no money, where are you going to find food? You know, it's like you just figure it out, right? Yeah. And so um, how do you meet people and let you stay on their couch, right? Like, it, it, so I learned social skills that way. So there's a lot that I learned from that background. One of the big things, though, is learning. It's not just problem solving, but learning how to identify like loopholes that no one else has spotted yet. I think that's been one of the most successful parts that's led me into success in SaaS is identifying problems and, and rather loopholes to solve problems that no one else has, has solved. Okay. I was doing some preparation for the show. I heard an interesting story you were telling uh, on another podcast about you breaking into a house and living there. Can you just quickly uh, tell our listeners about that? Because I think it's a great story. Um, did the old man kick you out of the house? Is that what it was? Uh, so this, well, okay. So what it was, was when I graduated high school, I made a commitment. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, like a decree, like a, a, a vow that I was never going to have a job for the rest of my life. And so starting from there, I had to get really creative about how to make that work. Cause I had no, you know, entrepreneurship was just not even like not part of my reality at all. So I decided, okay, I kind of unpacked the situation in kind of a Socratic fashion. I was like, all right. What do you really need to survive? You need food and you need shelter. Shelter, even that is like somewhat negotiable if the weather's nice, right? So but you need food and shelter. And so I was like, all right, where can I get food and where can I get shelter without having to have a job? So the shelter solution for me was to walk the streets of my wealthy suburb. I lived in a suburb outside Seattle and walk up and down the streets just randomly looking for abandoned houses. <laughs> now, that's a very unlikely formula for success when you're in a neighborhood where the average price yeah. is you know, over upwards of a million dollars. But my yeah, theory was right. one out of yeah. 500 houses has to be abandoned. Just statistically, that just seems to be that's what would happen. So I walked up and down every street. I found a house. It looked groomed on the outside. It was well-maintained. But when I put my face to the glass, something kind of looked off about the place. I put my face, you could see it had been gutted and there was just no one living there. So I broke in with a crowbar and <laughs> I realized I'm like, this is going to raise some questions. I wrote him the crowbar, um, and it turns out the house was owned by the government. It was owned by the Department of Transportation, and it was surplus property that was just unmaintained yeah. and it had been abandoned for years. So I moved, lived in that house for um, for two years. I moved in, and I lived there for for two years. True story. <laughs> and nobody hassled you. The police would come around once a week and do an inspection that amounted to shining their flashlights in the windows, and all I had to do was just stay out of sight. Uh, you know, my, my bed was positioned right up against the window. So it, it was outside the angle of the beam. And then um, they had landscapers come around once a week, once a week and once a month to mow the lawn. And if I could avoid those yeah. two threats, I was good. Yeah, that's a great story. So it sounds like that, that was part of a life lesson, right? Uh, it sounds to me like, okay, if I can get away with this, I could pretty much do anything. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah. And, and listen, I mean, there was, you know, everyone told me it couldn't be done. Like, how are you going to find an abandoned house in what was actually the second richest zip code in the state of Washington? The first one is where Jeff Bezos lives in Medina. So this is number two. And everyone said it can't be done. And so when you do something that people say can't be done, you realize everyone's lying to you. You realize the reality even fed is a fake reality, right? And so this transfers into entrepreneurship. When, yeah. I mean, as an entrepreneur, everyone's telling you it can't be done. Whatever problem you're trying to solve, don't even try. You'll never work, et cetera, et cetera. Right? We all hear this stuff. And so when I learned at an early age that if you just sort of – at that point, I just literally didn't know it, quote, couldn't be done. Like, I just didn't know it. As you get older, you know these layers of conditioning where you start to kind of believe the lie, right? It's like certain things are impossible, and then you kind of act in spite of that, maybe if you're really bold. But 
and when I was 18, I just literally, like, I just didn't know something couldn't be done. So I just did it anyway. And so what I try to do is maintain that mindset of just not knowing. And every time I have something I think is impossible, I don't just try to tell myself, it, it, I don't try to react to that thought. I try to just actually get back to a place where that childlike state where I just literally don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But I mean, so describe to me why you think your mindset was so, so poor when you were, you sounded like you were sort of saying that you, you were disadvantaged when you started as an entrepreneur. Explain to me, because it sounds like maybe you weren't so disadvantaged because it sounds like your mindset, you'd already sort of figured out, like I could actually get away with a lot more. Secondly, you're also coming from a perspective of like, what's could possibly get worse than me living in an abandoned house, right? I mean, all I need is food and shelter, and I've already proved to myself that I can do that. That sounds like a pretty valuable tool to start off as an entrepreneur. Can you can you just sort of take me through that process where you, that journey where you went from that abandoned house to those failed software and, and where you feel like your mindset was bad? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the one thing I want to mention is actually, everything you said is accurate except for me feeling like it couldn't be worse than living in a abandoned house. That was actually the best times of my life. And I still, I still would say that. So, but, so I actually enjoyed that experience. It wasn't really coming from a place of desperation, but everything else you said, hundred percent accurate. Like um, in terms of, yeah, I did come into entrepreneurship maybe with a certain mindset that was beneficial in a certain respects, but the sort of the negative aspects that I mentioned were, I think I picked this up from an internet marketer named Evan Pagan. Some of you may know, um, and um, I think he talks about the yeah. difference between a value extraction mindset and a value adding mindset. So as an entrepreneur, you need to add value to people in order, all right, in order to be successful. I was coming from a value extraction mindset to the extreme. In other words, it was literally like uh, it was literally okay. like like Trader Joe's. Like, what time of night do they take all their packaged food and throw it in the dumpster so that I can be there to like get it? You know, it's just like I need to get the thing. I need to get the food. I need to get the resource, right? So it was always about extracting value. And I never, and so coming into entrepreneurship, like some of my early, like, okay, so my tools and arbitrage, the initial idea for that tool was actually, keep in mind, I'm in my 30s at this point, like, okay, like, like when I'm developing this idea, but the initial idea was I had, I paid a developer to write a program. It didn't end up working, but the idea was to comb Amazon for products um, like that had been mispriced by automated repricing software because there's the automated repricing software is a big thing on Amazon and um, mo most mega sellers like large sellers on Amazon use software to reprice their inventory a certain percentage of the time it goes haywire and misprices inventory and so I looked at it like this was my Robin Hood move like the small seller strike out against the big seller who uses the big expensive enterprise software to reprice their inventory um, and so I was going to have this tool written to mine Amazon for products that have been mispriced down to like sometimes a penny and mm -hmm. it's a penny fulfillment by Amazon. Mm -hmm. so it's a penny with free shipping. <laughs> that means a hundred items for a dollar. Right. So I yeah, had this program. Yeah. And so I, I paid him to write this and you can see all the kind of mindset that went into that. And this is, this is back in 2014, 15, the mindset that went into that is like, and so all my early yeah, ideas yeah. were about what's the loophole that I could exploit. And that's when I look back, that's what makes me cringe a little bit. Because I think that mindset will serve you in a lot of places in life, but not in entrepreneurship. Okay. So tell me about getting started on your successful, uh, was it the, because um, it sounds like you were in Amazon for a while. When did you start figuring it out and becoming successful? I was, uh, so I, like I said, selling used books. I was going to library sales, thrift stores, finding cheap used books, reselling them on Amazon. I did pretty well at that. 
I was doing it for several years, and then I came across in a thrift store when I was looking for books. I came across a box set, and it was a CD box set. Um, it was Tony Robbins interviewing internet marketers at the time. This is about 2010. It was called the New Money Masters box set. So it was like interviewing Russell Brunson, Frank Kern, Evan Pagan, all these internet marketing guys that were big back then. And I drove around in my pickup truck listening to these CDs, and my mind was just blown. Like, it's easy to forget. Some stuff we hear now, we just get kind of, it's like, oh, yeah, we heard it all before. But you forget what it's like to hear something for the first time, how profound it is. So this idea of taking knowledge and repackaging it and selling it in the form of info products was just like mind-blowing. So I wrote an ebook on how to sell used books on Amazon. And so that became my business where I was selling ebooks um, to Amazon sellers. I have a blog that I set up, and uh, I write content, and I you know, sell ebooks. And I was doing okay. I was selling like a couple a day. You know, it's like a hundred bucks a day or something here and there, which is life changing at the time, right? Just have money to show up when you're sleeping. That the impetus for that was yeah. this, was this box set, this Tony Robbins box set. And so I got into info products after book selling or parallel to that. And then I did video courses, and that led me to software. Okay, great. Okay, so it sounds like Tony Robbins and and listening to that uh, CD was the one that sort of opened your mind. To becoming successful is that when you started the SaaS or when when did the SaaS start? So I did the info products for about a year, and in that in that time I was just frantically just with extreme I think desperation would be actually be an accurate word with desperation just combing the internet looking for any information I could on how to make money online right. So I was studying these guys like Jeff Walker, um, uh, I mentioned Evan Pagan, Frank Kern, these guys, and so fast forward about a, a year and a half into my info product business. I live in Boulder, Colorado. Studio apartment. I'm about three, mm-hmm. four at this time. Studio apartment on Frat Row, mm-hmm. like right across the street from the University of Colorado. Yeah. And uh, and I was with my girlfriend at the time, and we cut through a hotel. The story relates to one of your, your recent guests you had on. So I cut through a hotel, and there was a party. It was Halloween night. That was an important detail. And there was a party in this hotel in the lobby. The whole lobby was blocked off with velvet ropes. And so my girlfriend's like, oh, we got to go around. Like, well, because you know, we're just cutting through. And I was like, uh, this looks like fun. Let's go. And so we ducked under the velvet ropes and we're in this part, this Halloween party. And I'm just standing there. You were dressed up? Were you dressed up? We were dressed up. We were on our way to somewhere else. We were going to like a haunted house. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah, but yeah, yeah. we were dressed up. And uh, I think I was dressed like a pimp that year, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, so I'm just standing yeah. there. We're just kind of taking in this weird party. And Jeff Walker, a guy who I watched on YouTube every single day walks by me. And I was like, I don't know what party this is, but I, we're staying here. I was like, we're pl- can- plans are canceled. And so we proceeded to just mill around this party. So these are the people I saw in that party. Um, the CEO of Whole Foods, John Mackey, who I recognize, because I'm vegan, he's vegan, so I know him from kind of the, he would give like talks about veganism. So John Mackey, walk, I see John Mackey in the party. I see Andy Drish, who's not a name, I don't know. So he was the yeah. business partner of Dane Maxwell, so a recent guest of yours. So I recognize him because I'd seen yeah. some of his content. And so there's all these people that I'm studying who are in this room that's two blocks from my apartment. And so I'm freaking out. So we did some research. Turns out there was a, an event happening that weekend called the Success Summit. It was like 250 people. It was like, I think, $3,500 a person. I could not afford that. You know, I saw that it was sponsored by Whole Foods, obviously, because John Matthew was speaking. So I had my friend who worked for the company for years kind of pull some strings, gets me a pass. So I spend the next three days sitting in this conference just, I mean, I'm just like taking in every word, right? I'm desperate. And the, one of the last speakers, two of the last speakers were Dane Maxwell, a recent guest of yours, and Andy Drish. And they were talking about the yeah. software business model. And I mean, to say that I was hungry was, an understand- I was just like hungry, right? So 
So they give the, and they get up on stage and Dan is like, this isn't about software. It's about freedom. And he's like crying. I was like, yes. I was like, I don't know who these, I mean, I kind of knew who they were a little bit, but I was like, I need to sign up for whatever they're doing. Right. So, um, yeah. there's more to the story. Basically I signed up for the, what was the called the foundation at the time, which is basically a program for, um, coming up with a software idea, validating the idea, outsourcing the development, and then selling on a subscription basis. So the SaaS model. So, uh, as a non-tech founder, and so I signed up for what was the, I think it's called Start from Zero now, and um, or Start from Start from Zero. And so I signed up for that, and it was a six-month-long, like intense program. And I went through the entire thing, mm-hmm. and within three weeks of graduating, I launched uh, my first SaaS product, and it's been it's just been the most life-changing thing I've ever done. Okay, great. So let's get into that. So how did you come up with the idea for this? At you, you obviously knew the Amazon market. That's what it's about. But tell me, first of all, what's the SaaS product and how did you come up with the idea? So the tool is called Zen Arbitrage. And what it does, it kind of, um, it sort of um, capitalizes on this uh, kind of weird pricing glitch in Amazon where there's products that are sold by merchable filled sellers, meaning if you just sell a product, you just go to the post office and mail it, right? Then there's FBA, fulfillment by Amazon. And those are people that ship their products to Amazon in giant boxes. And then when the order gets sold, the Amazon fulfills it, right? So what my tool does is it, it finds the differences. What happened is the virtual filled sellers will sell at a much cheaper price than the FBA sellers most of the time. So that creates this ability to buy the merchant fulfilled price on Amazon, have it shipped to you, and then resell it back on Amazon as a fulfillment by Amazon seller at a higher price. So it's kind of, it's an arbitrage tool, obviously. Um, it's called an arbitrage. So. Okay. What it does, it's basically just a search engine for online arbitrage, specifically in the books category. So basically the tool just allows you to comb Amazon's database in a very efficient way to find those opportunities where you can buy low and resell high. And so to answer your other question, the reason, the way I came up with this was I had that initial idea and I paid a developer a bunch of money to write this tool to remind Amazon for the underpriced offers. And um, that didn't really actually end up working right. out. The one that didn't work. The one that didn't work. It did not yeah, work. Yeah, that's the and one so that didn't work. That I had this yeah, infrastructure yeah. built where we had this like, you know, I paid a lot of money on this infrastructure bill, so I had this like table, and basically a crude UI, and we were getting data from Amazon, we had a data feed from Amazon, I had nothing to do with it. Or I had nothing to do with this information, now this first idea didn't work. So I was, my mind was trained in the direction of what can I do with this framework we already have built. And so that's when I came up with this idea. And it was just one of those things that came to me when I was outsourcing books at a, at a thrift store. I was like, I wonder if this would work. And and then I actually I ran the idea by a friend. He's like, actually, funny you mentioned that. I have a friend who's doing that exact model, what you just described. She's making $400,000 a year. So that validated my idea, at least with one person. So I knew I was onto something. You could essentially take what you had and then you, did you use the same programmer and says, okay, was it a pivot? Like, tell me about the MVP, like for the failed product and then what it took to get to your uh, new product. What was the cost for that, like to pivot? So the, the idea for the failed product it was actually unclear whether I was going to use it entirely for myself. The idea was if I could find 500 underpriced items a day, I'd be rich, right? So I was like, I might just build this for myself, but if there's enough opportunity, I can open it up to the world. But when that didn't work out, um, the pivot wasn't terribly dramatic. I mean, we used to end up using basically pretty close to the same UI, the same data. So the pivot wasn't, like I said, terribly dramatic. But uh, so I would say, you know, we had like some sort options and things and like dress it up for a user. But by the time we released the product, it was very crude. I mean, it was ugly. It functioned, but it was definitely not something you normal. Mostly, you, most people would not look at this and say this is something that should be, <laughs> you know, accessible to the public. Yeah. It was very crude. Okay, but give me some numbers. Like, what do you think it was for the MVP and and then to, for the pivot? 
It doesn't have to be exact. The total cost to get to actually release the product was fourteen thousand. I don't have the numbers on what the actual the original failed product cost me, but from to get to launch was fourteen thousand dollars. Okay, which is good. That's a good price, I think. You know, it's a, it's probably what like three months of one. And where did you find your dev? This was it was a friend of a friend. I got very very lucky. Um, he was in between jobs, and so yeah, it was just a, through my personal contacts. Did you structure? Did you just pay him? Like, how did you pay him? Was it through the sales from the used books? Is that how you covered it, or how did you raise the funds for the MVP in this uh, building this SaaS? So it was from the used books. However, I had just moved to Boulder, Colorado at that point, and my sources weren't quite as abundant as where I had lived previously. So I was actually getting a lot of my inventory from dumpsters, and I would go to um, recycling center dumpsters. I would go to actually thrift store dumpsters as well. I would go to there was an audiobook distributor near Boulder, and I would dumpster dive there. And so a significant part of, of the, the, the startup capital came from literally liquidating um, products I found in dumpsters. That's incredible. And so, I mean, the business model for that really is you get a free book and then you sell it on Amazon for what, like six bucks or something? The range is pretty huge. You don't really start making money until you sell for upwards of $10. So the Amazon fees are pretty significant. So yeah, 10 and up. Okay. And people are, are okay buying a book for $12 that you literally got out of a dumpster, right? And people... They don't they don't know it came from a dumpster. Yeah. As a matter of fact, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just, uh, about six months ago, the Wall Street Journal found a video that I put on YouTube about me dumpster diving. And they sent some reporters down. The article ended up not happening for reasons I won't get into, but um, they sent some, uh, they want to do a big expose on, on, are your products on Amazon coming from the trash? And it was this big, like, thing they wanted oh, to do. Yeah. And, yeah, um, yeah. and so, yeah, so people are often shocked to find out. I mean, I, I don't think dumpster diving is, a, you know, the chance of you buying a book that came from a dumpster is like pretty slim at the end of the day, but a, a lot of that does happen, yes. I can imagine that it happens. It's a great, another great story. So then tell me how you got your first few customers. I had a blog. So I was following the classic internet marketing model. I had a blog, so I was producing content. I had a lead magnet and I built up my list to uh, it was pretty paltry. It was maybe like 4,000 people or something by the mid-2015, maybe 5,000. And um, and so I just, I, I again, I was like, I had no confidence in, in this idea, right? So the idea was I'm just going to host a webinar. Actually, I learned that from Nathan Latka. I saw him speak in Cancun at the foundation conference. And so he was like talking when he built his business on a webinar. So I was like, I was in the mode of just whatever someone tells me to do, I'm going to do it. So it's like, all right, webinar. So I'm going to host a webinar to my list. I put out an email. And I said, hey, I'm doing this webinar on this system that I'm calling Online Book Arbitrage. So I had to give it a name. So I called it Online Book Arbitrage. Mm -hmm. And what I did on this webinar is I taught people how to do manually what my software automated. So what I did is I said, here's how you go on Amazon. Here's how to structure your searches. Here's what you're looking for. Here's some free tools you can use. At the end, I said, by the way, I've got this new tool that basically streamlines this process tenfold. If you're interested, I was totally selling from the heels. I was like, hey. I got this thing. I don't know if you're into it, but if you want, I was like, you know, I was so insecure about, I didn't feel comfortable in the suit of a software entrepreneur, but I opened up to 100 spots. The reason it was 100 was basically just coming from a place of insecurity. I just did not think I, more than 100 people would be interested and I wanted to build up scarcity. So I said 100 people, I put up the button on the webinar and it sold out in 90 seconds. It was $100 a month, 97 a month. So 100 people, 97 wow. a month. It sold out in 90 seconds, and I was like, Shoot. Just from your list, the 4,000. Yeah. Yeah, it was from my list. So I got 800 people to register the webinar from a 5,000-person list, which is pretty good. And then I think, you know, probably 500 showed up or something. And it sold out, like, instantly. And my first thought was, 
why did I limit it to 100 people? Because <laughs> it could have been a $30,000 yeah, yeah, month yeah. product out of the gate. And then I opened it up to the public. I lifted the cap on registration, on, on membership um, after about six months. And so that instantly was doing 30 a month. And from there, it's just grown. 30,000? Yeah. Did you say? Yep. Yes, yes. So, okay, so it's basically, so the launch is essentially this first webinar. So tell me the numbers on that launch. How much, do, how many, you just said you got 100 users? 100 at, users instantly. At 100? 97 a month. Yeah. Okay. And how was the onboarding of those 100? It must have been mayhem, eh? Because you were probably expecting that. Uh, yeah, I was not expecting that. And it was fortunately because I opened it up to seasoned booksellers only. In other words, people that were already on my list, they already sort of understood book selling. There was not a, a tremendous yeah. amount of, of handhold involved. It was more just explain the concept of the software. I didn't have to teach people how to sell on Amazon from scratch. That's actually more what my business has turned into now. Okay. But yeah, so people are experienced. But yeah, it was, it was mayhem for sure. Absolutely. And how long was it before you opened up the webinar, the card again? Was it the same webinar or you just did it again? I released, this was in December, if I'm not mistaken. So about six months after initial launch, we opened it up and I did a second webinar. So all my whole business, it got to 35K off of two webinars. There was no other promotion. And um, the second webinar, again, there was just no cap on, on membership. And I think I got off that webinar an additional 250 people or so. So it was doing 35K. Okay. And just keep in mind, like, before six months prior, I was living off three thousand dollars a month. Right, so this is like this is like everything's happening really fast. Yeah. And um, what was significant to me about that that thirty k number, and I'm glad that your podcast kind of themed around that because thirty k was always the number I had in my mind going back to the very beginning of me even thinking about being an entrepreneur. Thirty k a month to me was you've made it right. That was like a thousand dollars a day, like gross or whatever, but like thousand dollars a day. Yeah. And I read that, I, that number was, I was fixated on that number because I read the Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Workweek, way back in 2007 or so. And he said he was making 30K a month off of his supplement business. And I just remember sitting outside Starbucks, I was in Pasadena, California, sitting outside Starbucks reading that. I just remember, I remember the moment just thinking, like, just kind of staring up at the sky, like, what would that feel like to have $1,000 a day coming in? Like, what would that feel like? And I just remember it just, it just seemed like fantastic, but I seized on that number and every day that was a number playing over my head. And I do think there's, I, I'm not religious and I'm not, you know, terribly <laughs> like new age, but I do think the fact that I was so fixated for like what at that point would have been like, I'm trying to do the math, like seven, eight years on the 30K number. There's, it seems too much of a coincidence that mm -hmm. I hit 30K very quickly and then it stayed there for years. I mean, it was only up until about a year and a half ago mm. that it, things really took off. Um, I broke through that ceiling, but I, I was at 30, 40. Really? K. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The, the reason that we, that I chose the 30,000, first of all, most people were saying, oh, there's no groups that are managing for people that are under, you know, zero to 30,000. Everyone's like, you know, over a hundred thousand or something like that. And the reason I chose 30,000 is because I, I think it is the point where you, you have figured things out. And your SaaS is probably not going to go bust, you know, at 15, you know, still things are a little shaky, you know, you can peak and, you know, kind of have luck and die out. But if you get to 30, I think you're probably going to succeed. Would you agree with that? Well, I got to 30 without having any idea what I was doing. And it's not a credit, I think, in any way to my entrepreneurship, uh, you know, entrepreneurial skills. I think it was really just a lot of it was dumb luck, but in a good idea that kind of came at the right time. But Yes. I mean, I do think that 
Although I have to say, when I hit 30K, my churn was ridiculous. Everything was bad. I mean, I, I churn was off the charts bad. I had no onboarding process. I had no, um, I was doing everything wrong, honestly. So I, I was able to get there without knowing what I was doing and making lots of mistakes. And I don't feel like it was stable, but I do think my business is probably the exception. Now, so tell me why you peaked out at 30. What was going on? Was it churn? You were adding people and then they were just churning? Or what was the problem? Why were you uh, so stagnant for, you know, that's a number of years. It's like, what, three years or something? Yeah. I did not understand customer retention. I didn't understand how to how to keep a customer. You have to understand my business is sort of, we're selling to people that want either a side hustle or a legitimate business, but there is a learning curve. So we're attracting a lot of people that maybe wanted the push button money. And I don't, I really do actively try to dissuade people like that from joining my software, but we did get a lot of that. So the churn was pretty bad when people realized there was actual work involved. Um, and I do think there's a lot of work we didn't do. Like I said, onboarding was bad. We put a lot of work into that. I'm um, using intercom, just really dialing in, helping people feel like they have early success and during their free trial, stuff like that. It's been really valuable. But yeah, and so the reason it, it peaked out at 30, 30, 40 was where it sat for a couple few years. And the reason for that also is that I was looking at this as a lifestyle business. So to me, 20, 30K at that time, I, you know, I've, I've since expanded my horizons, but I was like, I'm set. Like, I don't need to, I don't need to put in 12 hour days to get to 50, 60K. I didn't have any aspirations like that. In my mind, I was set. And so I just let things kind of, when I saw it dip down to like 28, I was like, all right, I need to go do a webinar. You know, I need to kind of chase more customers. And then I'd kick back and get to 40 and I'd watch it dwindle down and then I'd go out and hustle again. So that was kind of my approach for several years. Okay. So it wasn't necessarily the churn. It was just lack of going out and trying to, because it sounds like if you were, those two webinars were so successful, you could have just been banging out webinars, you know, and expanding your audience. It sounds like you were getting good return. You had a good pay, paid traffic channel and the webinar would have worked. What sort of got you thinking that, okay, maybe I need to focus more on the business. So why move away from 30,000 and start growing from there? Was something change? You know, it was actually really interesting. Again, I told you, I come from a middle-class background. I had a lot of stuff working against me in terms of my money mindset. And we talked about that a little bit. And so part of that was, I don't think I ever believed I could attain a level of wealth where I could literally just never have to think about money again. And what happened was after three or four years of 30 or 40K, I had a million dollars in the bank and I was like, wait a minute. I was like, I'm a millionaire. And then I was like, wait a minute. I could see actually getting to the place where I actually, you know, could just live off dividends or interest and never have to think about money again. And so once I could taste that, I started to chase that. Does that make sense? So up until then, it was just all kind of like, I don't have a lifestyle that requires 30K a month. It all just fell in the category of way more money than I could ever spend. And so, you know, what's the difference between 30K and 100K? Like, to me, it's nothing until I realized I was actually getting to a point where I could double down on this. I could never have to think about money ever again. So that's what really what it was for me. Okay. And was it more like freedom or what was the thing about the money? I mean, like you said, you had more money than you needed. It sounds like you were running things really lean. What was the size of your team at this time? Oh my gosh. I mean, my team was me up until I didn't start hiring people until a little over a year ago. So I always had a lead developer, sorry. So I always had a lead developer and I sort of build out not even really a team. I mean, to this day, this is the whole team. It's, it's customer support person. It is a, an affiliate manager. I started to ramp up the affiliate side of things and then a lead developer and then two contractors that work under him. And that's my team right now. Up until a year ago, it was, it was me and a, and a lead developer and that was it. 
Wow, that's great. So what changed then? So talk me through your mind has changed. You're trying to say, okay, a little hungrier to get back and double down, as you say. What what did you start doing that started to change the business around? What was the first thing that you did? So attack and churn was my first goal. So I I really went after that. Um, The next thing I started to do was, I mean, I didn't even have a YouTube presence. I wasn't even following the basic formula for a a credible business. So I started to create YouTube videos. But before you go on to that, can you just tell me what you did to churn, like stop churn? Like what did you do? So I got, I I just, I binged around on the subject, right? So that was the first thing. And to this day, I have a whole shelf of books that are just solely about customer retention that I refer to regularly. And so I just learned all the principles of getting people early success, making them feel appreciated, building a community. I didn't even have a Facebook group until about a year and a half ago. Um, So building a community, making people like they feel like a part of something, sharing success stories. I mean, my testimonials were almost non, I had the same six testimonials for three years. Like, you know, so like just like basic yeah. stuff you're supposed to do, I didn't do. So I built out my testimonials page, basically just sharing success stories, encouraging people okay. to share their success stories. I uh, was a big part of it. Um, then an intercom onboarding sequence so people would sign up. And I really hit all of the common objections, like why people cancel. Common objections is the why people are maybe not fully sold on the idea during their free trial on the concept of my software. And then also helping people overcoming common objections that people might have and then getting them some early success. So I really dialed it in, made tons and tons of videos, just the onboarding sequence got really, really dialed in. And so that was a huge, that's all built around Intercom, which has been a, just a huge boon for my business. Okay, so it was really, sounds like the technical tool was Intercom and that's pretty pricey, right? I mean, the Intercom's pretty expensive. How much do you pay for Intercom? It's about, so because of the number, I could clean it up and get the number down. Right now it's about 800 a month, but I have a lot of old leads in there that are just dead. If I clean it out, I could probably get it down about four like you said, I mean, you're doing well and it's such an important tool that for you, it's like having a, a staff member that's automating everything. So it's, it's easily within the value for your company to run that. Okay. So you got churned down. It sounds like, uh, were you calling customers or how were you getting the objections? How were you finding out about the objections? I had a little box when you, another huge, actually huge part of um, reducing churn for me was cancellation funnel. And I learned this from Russell Brunson, but okay. um, where basically when people cancel, you know, you don't want to be the guy who like makes it really hard for people to cancel. You don't want to be that guy, but you know, adding a couple steps just to kind of find out, hey, like, why are you canceling? Hey, like, is there a problem that we could solve? Maybe we can divert you this other direction. Do you want to pause your account instead of canceling? Is that a... so? We're kind of like trying to funnel people away from actually actually canceling. So we have the box. When you get to the final page, like, okay, I'm definitely canceling. Like, hey, what could we have done better? And so, um, and so that box has been really insightful. People just saying, hey, like, this is why I'm canceling. Um, also, just answering my own emails, which I did up until you know a year or so ago. Answering all my own emails, like I got to know very well the pains of my customers while they were canceling, why they were canceling, why they were frustrated if they were, and so um, I, I was really prepared to, you know, I waited way too long to tackle those issues. Okay, so was that handled by Intercom? Is that that's called a Dunning sequence, I believe, right? Oh, I have not even heard that. So if you're talking about the cancellation funnel, I do all that in ClickFunnels actually. Oh, okay. In, in click funnels, okay. It, as they go to cancel, um, that's very helpful. Any other sort of big takeaways um, that our listeners could hear you talk about? Like, what made you go from thirty to one hundred and fifty? That's what you're at now, like one hundred and fifty, right? Right. What was the main channel of growth there? It sounds like YouTube was a big one for you because before you're doing the webinars through your list only, or were you doing cold traffic as well? No, it was all internal, just to my email list. 
all focusing on books at this time? You're still focusing on the booksellers at this time? Is that still what you do or have you expanded that? Uh, my software is solely just for the books category. However, to answer your other question, a big part of what, what's been responsible for the growth is realizing that my market is much bigger than booksellers. The work from home market is huge and we sell a model that is, it's a business and it requires work, but it is effective, it's very sustainable. So reaching out to the work from home audience, people outside the book selling space, just the general sort of, you know, people looking for business opportunities, things like that, side hustles, people looking for those. So once we sort of realized, once I realized the market was much bigger than booksellers, that's where things really start to take off. Really the biggest driver, and I don't know if this is going to be helpful for people, but I think I learned this also from Evan Pagan, but he used the term edgy authentic. And basically working into your marketing that being willing to alienate a certain percentage of your potential market for the benefit of becoming that much more magnetic to the rest. So I got really comfortable just saying, this is who I am. This is who should not sign up. If you're this, this, and this, I don't want you anywhere near me. I don't want you as a customer. And that makes me that much more attractive to these other people over here. And that's been huge. I really kind of got comfortable telling people like, hey, I don't want, like, don't sign up. Like, or being comfortable just sort of like slaying sacred cows in the Amazon selling world. And people just kind of see like, this is somebody who's not just trying to chase down my business. They're actually wanting to say unpopular things for the benefit of, of, just being honest, right? So I think that really resonated with people. So I started to kind of be more mm -hmm. comfortable with that role. That was huge. And then just tons and tons of little tweaks, like adding an exit pop to my website for a free, um, a free, book, free plus shipping book offer, and then really dialing in the funnel for the free plus shipping book offer. Um, I recently hired an affiliate manager, so we're ramping up that side of things. So all those things have been really, really key for growth. Okay, that's great. Um, and so what about uh, any plans for the uh, future? Is it just expand the SaaS or any other, like, what are you thinking now for growth? For growth, we have a ton of products in the pipeline. Some really, really big stuff I'm excited about that I think will even overshadow my flagship product. So right now, the full product of Suite is Zen Arbitrage with a web-based app, and then we have a whole five or six Chrome extensions that we sell on a subscription basis as well. And um, I really like to ramp up the Chrome extension side of things. I'm also, honestly, you know, if I had a buyer across the table for me, potential buyer, I could rattle off 10 or 15 things they could do in under a month to increase revenue, double digits or triple digits. And these are things that because I've, I've been so committed to staying small that I just can't do. So I've been lately thinking about, you know, this business would be much better off in the hands of someone that could act with a team that could really just blow this thing up. And so I've been thinking kind of going in the direction of an exit also. Okay. So you're thinking, okay, which is interesting. Anyone that's listening out there, that's great. What would you do if you sold? Would you, would you just kind of go back to travel or are you bet? Are you in the game now? You want to start something new? What I love is teaching this stuff. What I don't like is the responsibility of running a business. I've never been comfortable with that. Just the weight on my shoulders and having it, you know, my customers, you know, like depend on me and some people are putting their kids through college off my software, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot of pressure on me. And so that pressure is pretty intense oftentimes. In fact, I would say most days it's very, very intense. So what I would like to do is just shift my role into teaching this stuff. I love that, creating content, videos. I really, really love helping Amazon sellers. I'm very protective of that community. So I love helping those people without the responsibility. So I would love to shift my role just to, I would love to be the face of the business without the responsibility. Also beyond that, there's books I want to write. I want to write a memoir about the years I spent 
hitchhiking the country. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like there'd be a lot of good life lessons from that. I mean, what Bina Hobo taught me about entrepreneurship or something, that, that might be a book there. So there's that kind of stuff and other business ideas that, that I think are much more risky that I just would like the freedom to just throw some money at it and see what happens that I don't really feel like I have the time for right now. Okay. That's great. Peter, listen, we're getting to the top of the hour. I want to thank you for your time. How can people find you? You obviously sound like you're open. So email is uh, what support it as in arbitrage.com. That works. Also, Peter at FBAMastery.com will get to me more directly. And that's FBA, performed by Amazon, FBAMastery.com. The website, I have a blog, FBAMastery.com. And then the website for my flagship product is Zen Arbitrage. Okay, great. Thanks so much for your time, Peter. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Big Break Software Podcast with your host, Jordy Wardman. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out on the web. Keep listening and your software big break could be right around the corner. <music>